As we all know, making a first feature film as a director or as a writer-director is extremely challenging from many different perspectives. Getting it made from a financial perspective, but also the process, because hey, you've never made a feature film before. Today, my guest, or one of my guests, is talking about his feature film debut, a movie called Blindfire. Mike Nell has been working at the production company that made Blindfire can do for a long time with producer Howard Barish. Howard Barish also joins us as a guest. And what's so useful about their input and their interview with us is that they talk about the independent film landscape from learning how to get involved to actually executing an indie film to getting eyes on it to the challenges behind having a production company that specializes in independent feature films and first-time directors. Can Do has done a lot of different things in its lifespan as a production company from Howard Barish, but this initiative to get more independent features from first-time filmmakers or first-time directors, I should say, is really cool and of really of interest to No Film School, to us, and I'm sure to many of you. They talk specifically about what they look for in a project, what makes a project work for them from a production standpoint. But also this project, Blindfire, it comes with a lot of baggage. It is about a police officer who murders an African-American man who's innocent because he thinks he poses a threat. And this was conceived of and written and set into production well before 2020 when this topic exploded because of the events this year with George Floyd as well as with others. And that has changed the lifespan of the project. And we talk about that. We talk about the intent behind it. We talk about navigating the topic. We talk about the response. And we talk about filmmaking in general. So check it out. Thank you guys both so much for being here, Mike and Howard. Uh, it's nice to have you on the podcast. Just given the nature of Blind Fire, the film that we're mostly going to be talking about today, I'm really curious, given the current climate surrounding the topic that the film covers, how long ago, where did Blind Fire start? Let's start with that. It's an interesting, long answer to go into, but I've worked with Howard for about eight years now, and he has a slate going on that is for emerging artists, and I was fortunate enough to write Blind Fire and have that be a film on the slate. And that was our fourth film to come out. And where that film really came from was from working on 13th, another project I got to work on with Howard. It was an award-winning project directed by Ava DuVernay. And my experience working on that was very life-changing. And as many people who watched 13th talked about how profound a film it was, and then it became really popular again, especially this year. And my experience was sitting in an edit bay seeing the film come in. And I wasn't part of the creative side of this. I was fortunate enough to just be in the room for all the interviews and be documenting footage that came in. 
and being on that side of things. And there were so many profound things that I hadn't experienced that I was learning through this film and seeing footage just stack up in the edit bay over the two-year process of making this film in a folder of young men dying at the hands of the police and then watching all of these cases play out and there never really being any accountability to them. It was just something that I could never not see anymore after being a part of a project like that. And then a story came across the news and how real world inspires art so many times. I heard of a swatting story and I knew what swatting was and was aware of it, but can you explain it, it real quick for our podcast audience who's not familiar? Because before I, before my experience, my exposure to blind fire, I was not familiar with it. So swatting is something that kind of became a thing with the online community and the gaming community. And it is a way to prank your friend by using the police. So in my day, you would order fake pizzas to someone's house or something like that. But now kids are tricking police officers into a forceful response at someone's house. And to my awareness, it started in the video game community and a lot of the shooting war video games and these guys pranking each other. And now you can go online and you can see, since people record themselves on Twitch and so many different platforms while they're playing games, you can see these calls where officers have to burst into these homes. And then it's a kid sitting there saying, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. Someone's pranking me. There's different offices that have already had to call into the police and say, hey, if something like this happens and you're told to come here, be aware that this is probably a joke, like look into it twice, like have a moment of pause. And the first time I heard about swatting, I knew that this was going to end badly. And then unfortunately, it cost someone their life in Wichita, Kansas. And as soon as I saw that story, I didn't wait to see how that story played out. I just saw this situation and so many situations beforehand that I encountered working on 13th. And I instantly had this character in my head who Will Bishop, Officer Will Bishop, ended up being in my film. And then I knew I had this opportunity to talk about a loss of life that should never have happened at the hands of the police and then talk about someone's journey to accountability with it. And I just found it topical and interesting. And with film, I wanted to get across a message of a social issue, but you also have to be in the entertainment business. And I thought a story about swatting that is so unheard of and profound had that type of twist and element of action that would also put an officer in a situation of accountability and judgment and a message. So I thought I could try and sneak that in under the rug of a entertaining film. For a first film, it's quite a, quite a hurdle to clear, you know, like, I mean, it's especially right now, you know, like that, that's why I also ask about timing. When did it all, when did it start in terms of your writing process with the idea? Cause you mentioned in terms of like, but in terms of timeline, you know, like what year, uh, how long ago did you first sit down and start writing this script? I started writing it a couple years ago. And originally I had always 
intended on wanting to make a film on this slate of films. I produced and co-produced the first three films on this slate with Howard, and I was using it as a great film school situation to really build myself into an artist and learn from all these directors before me of how I was going to do this. And I was going to make a movie about a Uber driver who gets captured by a serial killer. And now we've seen three more like that. And (laughs) I mean, thankfully, right before I pulled the trigger on that, I saw someone else who had gotten their film into a festival that was that concept. And I was, oh no, I got to go see this. This film's going to be right in my same budget zone, right in my same topic, same everything. And it really put the brakes on what I was doing. And then at that moment, I had an epiphany and said, you get an opportunity that you might only get one shot at. And so tell a message that you want to speak on forever because you might only be speaking on that topic forever. So (laughs) it was really poignant to me to do a message that I had a clear intent on that I believed in. And after working on 13th and having the project that we had gotten done with called Skin in the Game by uh, director Adisa that Howard produced, I had seen and had the feeling of making these films that talked about social issues and that type of payment that isn't financial success or anything like that, but the feel good part, I knew that's what I wanted. That's just as important as everything else. And I knew that if I was able to thread the needle on this, I could make a film that really spoke to people and spoke to an audience, hopefully like me, about accountability and the things that I was feeling at the moment. I'm curious now going over to you, Howard, when uh, you, what your thoughts were when you first read my script and, you know, coming out of a long producing career, but particularly as Mike mentioned, the 13th, which I think we would agree is, is a landmark movie. And I'm curious what your role and Ken Do's role was in it. And then, and then leading into, you know, seeing this script and thinking, okay, we're going to do this. I met uh, Ava DuVernay 10, 11 years ago, I guess. I have uh, an active uh, commercial production company here in Los Angeles, and she had moved into our building and had a couple of scripts that she had written. And once she realized that we were an active company with cameras and trucks and lights and everything you need to make (laughs) a movie, she was standing in front of me saying, hey, I wrote this script that I want to direct. Will you help me produce it? And initially it was like, no, I don't think so. I'm really busy. But uh, eventually, you know, I got to know her and see her passion and her tenacity and, and you know, such an intelligent woman. At some point I read the script and it was great. It was like, how do I say no to this person? I can't. So, you know, I gave her access to all of my stuff. We made a tiny little movie uh, called I Will Follow that got a theatrical release. I had such a great time doing it with her. Uh, you know, she had another script called Middle of Nowhere. Uh, we did that picture together, um, and then that set it, sent us on a journey for another half a dozen projects. The last one that we've done together was uh, 13th uh, for Netflix. And, yeah, it's it's a very powerful film, and uh, you know, it took like, two and a half years from first phone call to delivery, and, and it was great. So, you know, one of the things that, that, I, that I got from Ava was that you can make, you know, films, small films, for not a lot of money and really have, you know, quality content and quality product and, and also impart a message along the way. So it sort of inspired me to try to help other, you know, new young filmmakers 
sometimes not so young, but uh, really emerging artists and, and first-time directors by um, putting an initiative together to fund and produce and in some cases uh, distribute uh, the films that uh, we're producing and, and other uh, first-time filmmakers uh, that are having trouble getting their films out there. So Mike, as Mike said, he's been with me, you know, here at KMB Films, uh, you know, my right hand here for a lot of years. And um, we had started producing, you know, a number of these smaller films. And, you know, he went off on his own volition weekends and evenings and started writing the script and eventually brought it to me and said, hey, I want a shot at one of these things. And, uh, you know, I go right back to the Ava story. I read the script and I looked at him and it was like, how do I say no to this guy? I can't. You know, so. <laughs> so for other aspiring, yeah. you know, first time filmmakers or cause you know, that, that was Ava's first feature. For, uh, first narrative. She had done a couple of really tiny, uh, documentaries, but yes, these were her first narrative pictures. And so you have, you know, this is something you mentioned you've done before for those out there hoping that there are many. To get a first feature made, you said you identified in both of these instances that there was. How do I say no to this person? Uh, no is like the most common thing uttered in this town. Certainly, how does somebody get to someone who will who can't say no? I, I mean, like I know that sounds like a weird kind of tongue twister, but can you elaborate as a producer who has? I mean, it's called can do, but like the can do. You know, you guys, like you said, we can make a movie, what is it that you see? I, I think the interesting thing is, you know, we're looking for pictures that we're not going to spend millions and millions of dollars, you know, on a first time director uh, within this initiative. So I can tell you what we're not looking for because we can't afford to do them. We're not doing big action movies. We're not doing period piece movies. We're not doing foreign location movies. We're doing stuff that are smaller, that are contained, that for the most part can be shot in Los Angeles because our trucks are here and our resources are here and actors, you know, that are working for bare minimum SAG scale, uh, you know, get to go home and sleep in their own bed at night and tuck their kids in and, um, you know, they're not staying in a Motel 8 for, you know, forever and a day. And so it makes it easy for us to shoot these, believe it or not, in L.A. where most people go, we can't afford to shoot in L.A., uh, so the first thing is, is it an affordable picture? And then, you know, really, it's the old adage, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Uh, it's got to be a really compelling story. And we do tend to gravitate more to social issue type of films. But we've done, you know, uh, noir thrillers, and we've gotten behind a horror film. We've sort of touched on a lot of genres. Probably the only one we haven't is comedy because in my opinion, it's very hard to do well. And so that's really what it is. We look at all kinds of stuff. We do say no a lot, but every once in a while something comes along. And a lot of it has to do with the person. You know, if that filmmaker is a collaborative person, if they're open to, you know, really hearing what we have to say, I don't want to take over any project. I don't want to you know, impart my final cut on anything, because if I've done that, I failed by finding the right person and empowering them. But I want somebody that's open-minded enough to explore other options, you know, when they get ideas and suggestions sent to them and not just go, absolutely not, that's not my vision, you know. And so, because 
because when you make a decision to get involved with a new filmmaker, it's not a three-week, you know, uh, project. You're tied to this person for years, <laughs> you know. <Yes>. It's a <laughs> long relationship. So I, I, I need to like the person. I'm going to want to be able to go have dinner with them, you know, in two years from now. And, and that's a really important part. So personality, you know, perseverance, passion, uh, collaboration, really, to be honest, kind of takes a, a forefront in my decision making uh, before I even read the story and decide if I like the content. Um, so I hope, long-winded answer, but hopefully that helps. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great answer. I know in the instance of Mike, you did already have a long relationship, so you knew you were okay there, or maybe you knew you weren't okay there. <laughs> but either way, you guys have had a history working together. So, and just let me say to that, you know, Mike came in here really in an entry-level position uh, at Can Do Films. You know, when he walked in the doors in an entry-level position. Because a lot of young people come in here and take first-time jobs. And what do you want to do with your aspiration? I want to direct. Uh, and when can I start? And it's like, you know, the first day he walked in, there was no directing in his future in my mind. But, you know, <laughs> uh, Mike worked his ass off here. And he got involved in every single aspect of our business and wasn't afraid to put in the extra mile, you know. And, and all of that stuff adds up. So when the time came that he said, I want to do this, you know, and I look at the history of what he's done here and how he's performed. Again, it's how do I say no to this person? I can't. That uh, that's actually like a nugget of great advice packaged into that comment because one of the things we talk about a lot at No Film School is ways to get. Even though we're not opposed to film school, certainly plenty of us went. <laughs> but that the idea that there are ways to get involved and get to, you know, your career goals or realize them one step at a time. And like, how does that, how does that work? And it sounds like in this situation, Mike showed up ready to work, ready to learn. Yeah. And we've had a lot of those guys, you know, I've been very fortunate. Can Do Films has been around since 1992, which not very many production companies have that longevity. And we've had a lot of people come through the door here. We use a lot of interns over the years. And we've got handfuls of people that are now vice presidents at NBC and Fox and CBS. And, you know, um, a lot of people have, have really, you know, um, carved unbelievable careers for themselves, getting their, their first foot in the door here, you know, and, and being able to, you know, springboard off of that. So was Ken do the first thing? Where did you start? Where did your career begin? So I was in Los Angeles for about four years before I worked at Can Do Films. And one of the things that I learned in that time was one of the things that makes me valuable here at this company, I believe. And that's being adaptable to whatever you need to do. And in those four years out here, I PA'd, I did art department work, I digitized VHS tapes of old ladies' vacations to yeah, I have I have done all sorts of things. I made graphic designs for the biggest losers nutritionist. I have done I have done anything I could, and but having that adaptable mindset is what helped me move up here at Can Do Films once I was in the door. And once I was in the door here, I was assistant to the creative director at one point in time. But there was nothing I was ever going to say no to. So as the company 
changed from a promo company and went more into our independent films as they became successful in the direction we wanted to go, I started driving trucks. I started answering phones. I would be an assistant editor. I would help do camera department and camera gear and be responsible for all of the things we own. So any type of thing that I could do was what I did. And I think that's something that people will find very helpful in their career is be any type of asset you can. And especially if you find the relationships and places that you want to be, be the right bolt that they need, be the right screw that fits. And when you can be there and establish those relationships, you will find people who will root for you and become a fan of you and want the best for you. And the more of those types of people that you can develop in this industry, the further you're going to want to go because that old adage is you get somewhere fast alone, but you go far together. Eventually, you got to go somewhere together, especially in this film industry. Knowing how to do all those things and having done all those things, even perhaps digitizing old ladies' vacation VHS tapes makes you a good director. Because some people think, I'm going to be a director, like Howard mentioned. They come in the door, it's like, I'm going to be a director, or they show up to school or whatever. I'm going to be Steven Spielberg. But there's a lot, uh, there's an A to Z, right, of everything that happens and all these people you need to communicate with on a set or in production process or knowing what it's like to edit something. If you don't know, if you haven't done it, it puts you at a disadvantage when you're trying to communicate your vision, right? So how, how much, how did it manifest? You got to set, you're shooting blind fire, you know. How did all of that manifest? Did it did it come in handy? Am I wrong? Did it not? <laughs> it, like, how did it manifest as a, as a first-time director? It came in very handy. I mean, the fact that I've done a lot of these positions, and an expert of none of them. I am not a gaffer. I am not a key grip. I am none of these positions. I have such a high respect for the guys that do that. I would never say that that is what I do. But I've been a part of their departments, and I know what it takes, and I know the time they need to do things. And I know how my decisions can trickle down and affect all of them. So I know the importance of having a clear plan and telling them something and not changing it. So I just have a respect for these different crafts, even though I haven't mastered them. And at the same regard, if you start knowing everyone's business a little too much, I would have to stop myself as a first time director and remember that my job is to direct this movie and let everyone else do their best and run their department. We had a lovely Russian gaffer who I could barely communicate with and he would never let me touch a thing because I'm used to being on set and I'm a big guy. I'm going to carry stuff. I'm going to move stuff. I'm going to help out. (laughs) And he'd have to remind me that this isn't your place, bud. You got to go do your job and me and my team do this job because I'm so used to being all hands on deck. Right. I had to, sure, and depending yeah, on yeah. some things, you're not even allowed to touch some gear on some sets. Yeah. So and, <laughs> it could well, be a tricky situation. In this indie world that I'm still working in, where I know who owns yeah. all the gear, and I know yes. at the end of this who has to put it all away, <laughs> and that guy's me, and who drives the truck at the end of this. Uh, right. Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to hold myself back because those are those are my toys in my mind and when i'm not director i'm responsible for all of it so uh, it was a mental thing i had to break but it was great to break out of that and take the step into directing and as you asked all of the experience of getting to work with all of the other first and second time directors and emerging artists on this slate before me 
was such a great benefit to see what they went through and what worked well and what didn't. And the movie I was about to do that was the Uber movie, we were going to have to still shoot that in the same short 15-day timeline. And to think about doing that much car rigging after I had done two movies that had some car rigging, and those were some of our hardest days and the footage I was the least confident in, and things just weren't fun. And for a first-time director to take on that many days of things that just weren't fun, that sounded like a horrible <laughs> idea. So, I mean, getting to learn before I went into right. this and learn all the technical things was so beneficial. Howard, as a producer in charge of the production company and, and overseeing the slate, watching Mike make the move, how did it feel? And what was his, you know, his background with the company? Like, how did it all go? You know, we don't often get to talk to a production company and like, this is a unique situation. So I'm curious to hear the perspective from the producer as well of like, wow, it was great because I could just set him loose or it was, you know, I mean, you probably won't tell me it wasn't great. I assume, <laughs> I assume things went well, I but been fired. I'm just curious from the, from, yeah, I'm curious from your perspective, what was this production like? Was it similar to others? Was it, um, you know, what is this initiative like of getting first-time directors? Is it thorny sometimes? Well, yeah, it's thorny because you don't know what you're going to get. You know, you, you sometimes these directors have written the script that they're about to direct. And, and we've had cases where scripts have come in from writers and we've paired them with directors. And although, you know, listen, we don't take any directors here that are right off the bus and never done anything. You know, they have to have some kind of some kind of background, you know, in in film or television or photography or something. You know, they're, they're not totally green. You know, Mike alluded to a movie called Skin in the Game that we did. Uh, Adisa was a professional sound recordist. You know, he had been on a lot of sets as a sound recordist, but that's not a director. And we gave yeah. him a shot, you know, to direct a film. So he had some idea as to what was happening. Um, you know, Dave Schwepp was a, a commercial uh, director, photographer, had an idea of what the heck was going on. Um, but to go back to your question, I mean, obviously, you know, the day Mike starts, I'm rooting for him. You know, I'm, right. I'm, I'm rooting for anybody and everybody in this production, because if I'm not rooting for them, there's something horribly, horribly wrong, you know, in the equation. <laughs> and and God and and listen, for some of these guys, if it doesn't work out, like I said, it's a two-year ordeal, and then maybe I never see the person again. The last thing I want to do is after Mike working here for eight years, is to have to look at him, you know, on day seven of the of shooting and going, listen, man, this isn't working. I'm sorry, you're fired, you know, and pack up your stuff and yeah. go. That would just be the worst. You know, I mean, there's an extra level of pressure, you know, on my end because I want this to work and I don't want this to be the end of our relationship. And that can happen very easily. But fortunately, you know, that's that's not what happened. And, you know, you stand there and you watch him do his thing and you watch you watch guys evolve and, and grow and make mistakes. And you got to let them sometimes make the mistake and then they learn from that mistake and, you, you know, gently try to push or guide wherever you can, if you think something looks like it's derailing. And for the most part, you know, the beauty about these small little films is that everybody's there because they want to be there. 
you know, these are not right. big paycheck, you know, gigs. So nobody's there just, you know, for the paycheck and for a mortgage payment. They're there because they believe in small independent films. They're passionate. Maybe the gaffer, not in, in Mike's case, but maybe this is the uh, first time, maybe this is a best boy who's becoming, you know, the, uh, the lead of his department and he's getting a break or she, we hire a lot of women, you know, in Mike's film, our production designer was female, our cinematographer was female, our editor was female, our, co uh, you know, it, we had a lot of women, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that we employ uh, on this project, but, you know, everybody's there for the same reason. They all want it to work and they're all doing their best and they're all, you know, digging in. And so you got to really have a horrible speed bump for the thing to derail when everybody's just so into it. You know what I mean? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Can you take me back now to when you started Can Do and why and how it's evolved? Because it's gone through evolutions in its uh, almost 30 years. Yeah. Uh, so I moved here. I'm originally from Toronto, Canada. I moved here in 1991. I was a first assistant director uh, in Toronto when I left, working and ADing probably some of the biggest television shows, miniseries, movies of the week at that time uh, that that was ever produced up there. Uh, a lot of them U.S. product that was shooting north of the border. Sort of got tired of being a first assistant director and wanted to move into producing and or directing. And I got really lucky. I was able to make the move to Los Angeles. I knew two guys that had a tiny, tiny little company that was uh, servicing NBC, doing uh, these uh, things called on-air promos. Actor would stand in front of a, a simple backdrop and go, hey, my name's blah, 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 watch my show Thursday nights at 8, cut, print, go home. And I was like, wow, didn't even realize they hired people to do those kind of things. <laughs> How did you know these two guys who did that? I had been hired to go to Thailand and Japan as a production manager uh, for a television series called Women of the World a long time ago. And these guys uh, that um, had this company were the producers of that series. They were the, they came up to Toronto and based themselves out of Canada for a year and a half doing that series. And when they, when the show ended and they went back to Los Angeles, they were the only two contacts that I had in Los Angeles. And I might add that they really weren't solid contacts because I got hired on a Wednesday afternoon, and on Friday morning, I was on an airplane to Tokyo. And by the time I came back, those two guys were packed up and gone back to, to Los Angeles. I had seen and met these two individuals for a total of maybe 45 minutes in my <laughs> life. <laughs> but I did a great job for them, you know, and it goes back to what Mike said, you know, I went the extra yeah. mile. 
you know, I did stuff for them in that part of the world, brought it in under budget and on time and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so when I got the chance to move to L.A. and I called them up and said, hey, I'm coming to Los Angeles. Can I buy you guys lunch? They were like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we would love to see you. And, um, and, I, and I worked That's a it. critical piece of this story, I feel like. Yeah, it's Because a it's, it's a small piece, probably, but it's the impression you left working with them or for them that helped you get back in touch with them and, and left an impression on them. Right. And then, you know, the story gets a little more interesting because they had a tiny company and they could not afford to hire me and they had no reason to hire me. You know, when they had production jobs and all they would hire me for was to be an AD, an assistant director, maybe a producer. And they were just doing simple, tiny, small, little, you know, commercial type shoots. Um, and they had a roster of freelance guys that they would hire to do that stuff. But they had an office you know, and they had a receptionist and they had a spare room. And I knew that I was either going to set up shop in the second bedroom of my apartment and try to be a producer, or I could ask them if I could live, you know, in their office space, if they could print me up business cards and, you know, just let me, don't pay me a cent, you know, uh, but if they get you know, any of these promo jobs and instead of hiring their freelance guys, you know, hire me for the two days to do the gig. And in return, I'm here with a basket of scripts and ideas and I'll become your development guy and I will try to help take your company into long form if you can try to help support me, you know, a couple days, a day, a month with your short form. And, um, and you know, that it worked. <laughs> they, <clears throat> they took the offer on that. <laughs> Absolutely. What did they have to lose? Nothing. Right. They had everything to gain. So they got a full-time, you know, experienced guy. And I went out there and we sold a couple of pilots, a couple of scripts, and we shot a pilot and, and we were on our way to become, to exploding when unfortunately, you know, they made a couple of bad business decisions and, you know, uh, we, the, their company hit the skids and everything sort of derailed and we all sort of walked away on our own. And I decided to take a risk. I had, I had the opportunity to get a production executive job at Disney at the time. I really wanted to, you know, get, see if I could take a shot at doing my stuff. At that time, you know, I had one, at this point, I had one child, you know, I had responsibilities, but if I didn't take that shot now, I was never going to do it. So I found a small office, you know, uh, shared space in Beverly Hills. I moved in. I hung the hung the shingle on the door, and yeah. and you know made a couple of phone calls, and and you know all of a sudden the yellow brick road sort of started to unfold beneath my feet. The rest is sort of history. I got really close to getting a television series off the ground, and in the 11th hour, I found out I was in a race with Stephen Pinnell, who at that time was a huge producer, had the exact yeah. same concept. I was never going to win that race. And if I didn't figure out how to generate an income really quickly, I'd be on the next Greyhound bus back to Canada. So I made a couple of phone calls <laughs> to the networks that had hired us, you know, doing these promos, and I said, listen, you know that this company is gone. Hopefully, you know, I was instrumental in helping them do a lot of the work over the last 18 months. Uh, if I can be of assistance, you know, here I am. And the first guy that I called who actually was at Disney, 
uh, was Orn Aviv, and he said, you start tomorrow. I need some footage of, uh, of Iditarod Dogs for a movie called Snow Dogs. And yeah. that's what it was. And can you find <laughs> snow? And it was like, I'm Canadian. Can I find snow? And, and that sort of birthed, you know, can do films. And before I knew it, you know, my, I, I, my path veered to the left and I started to build a promo company. And eventually, you know, 15, 20 years later, probably had one of the largest promo companies on the West Coast servicing the major networks and studios doing the branding and image campaigns for three out of the five major networks every single year for 15 consecutive years. It was crazy. We still do the branding and image campaign for the CW network. Since the inception of that network, we're the only company that's ever done it. So once you could hang your hat on that, and as you've been able to for so long, it's given you the freedom to expand into into initiatives like giving a first-time director a seat in the director's chair on a project that has message or meaning or a script you believe in, like some creative inspiration. Correct. And, you know, it didn't hurt that I was getting older and watching the days go by and realizing, shit, I might be on the back nine here. And I moved here to make movies. How do I course correct to try to finish what I wanted to start? And, uh, and that's basically what I've done. You know, people always want to know what is a producer? What do producers do? There's so many producers on a movie or on a TV show. What the hell is everyone's job? And, and how do you become one? But I think that in your story, there's a little, there's a few sections that I'd highlight that say, like, making the decision, for example, to say, you know, this is the time for me to do this. I may have a job here at Disney, but instead, I'm going to kind of take the chance. Like, I'm going to take the shot on just making a few phone calls and seeing what I can set up. Um, and knowing that sometimes that that you'll hit the dead end there, that's, I think, what how you become a producer. <laughs> that's big, what it is, the right? The biggest piece of advice I give people is become a student of your own industry. You know, start reading the trades, start joining organizations, start hanging out with like-minded people, you know, that, that, that are looking for, that have similar you know, career goals as you have. Uh, join film independent, you know, uh, go to events and, and, and seminars. It's all about connections. Connections are going to get you in the door and then hopefully your talent will keep you there. But, you know, you meet somebody, stay in touch with them, send them a Christmas card, you know, just, just don't, you never know, you know, who's going to wind up in a seat that can help you and never, 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 ever burn a bridge no matter how much you might like dislike a person because you may need to go back <laughs> to them one day, you know, for help. So that's good advice. Yeah. I, I, you know, I want to circle back before we finish. I want to talk again about blind fire and particularly responses, thoughts or reflections from both of you, because blind fire, it's threading a needle. It's about a murder of an innocent African-American man by a policeman in the year 2020. I mean, you don't need to say much else besides for that. There is so much around that. Um, having started it years before, having come off, a, like I said, a landmark like the 13th for both of you and been inspired, 
how has putting this message out there, how has creating this film this year, like the timing, but but just the general response, how has it been? Has it been overwhelming or has it been, um, have you achieved everything you set out to? Are there things you wish you did a little differently? Well, we didn't win Sundance, so we didn't achieve everything you set out to. Like everyone, when they make these movies, you have the dream of, I'm going to conquer the world. And then as Mark Duplass says in his great speech, the Calvary isn't necessarily there. Almost nobody ever does, right? Or they do, like like I always, whenever we talk to filmmakers who, uh, who've been to Sundance and then it's like, well, I was at Sundance, but then, you know, I didn't get a deal. Or I, or, or I got a deal, but then nobody saw the movie. <laughs> there's always a next step that's like, there's always a turn that it can take, right? Yeah, so, I mean, it's double-sided. I am living every one of these listeners' dream right now, and I don't take that for granted for a second. I'm extremely grateful for all of it, but then I have to put on the other side of my hat and say, we have to push and sell and market this movie and do everything we can so we get the message out there that I made this movie for and why I want everyone to see it. And I knew we right. were threading this needle when we were going to do this. As soon as as soon as I knew for certain this is greenlit, we're not going to make a horror movie, but this is the route we're going to go. I had an extreme privilege situation of being here to where I went from having one movie that I thought we were going to make. We were getting people in place. I had some of the crew hired. My casting director was looking for a lead. The checks that all of the employees on Blindfire have say Fair Share, the name of the movie I was going to make until we pulled the switcheroo and went this direction. So I knew already that I kind of had the green light on this that was going to be potentially a second film for me. But... When I made it, trying to thread this needle, I was aware that it might not be perfect for everybody, but the juice was worth the squeeze in this situation. And there was so many friends of mine that I would want to speak for that I knew my intent of this film would be to help and to service. And I get asked so many times is, are you making a black film? Is this a white film? Is this a black film? And Everyone wants to paint your product into a box so they can know how they're going to market it and how to spin it and everything. But it's a human film. And though I'm a white director who made this about a white character with a white actor, Brian, who stepped up and took this role, Brian Garrity. So everyone knows his name, who really went to bat for me, who I'll be forever grateful for. I, I knew making this statement and getting it right and speaking this message could definitely be worth every bit of it. And then the conversations like this one that would get to spring from it would totally be worth it. And when we made this film, I wrote it two years ago. We were in production like a year and a half ago or so. We weren't in the climate that we're in right now. So the audience that right. I really made this for, it doesn't exist anymore. Because if you didn't see that eight-minute film this spring with George Floyd, and that didn't change you, what's art going to do? Like, mm. yeah, art imitates yeah. real life. And unfortunately, everyone saw an eight-minute real-life video. And the audience that I was trying to speak to, I mean, they they really don't exist much anymore because the conversation I wanted to start, I mean, that ship already left the port. That conversation has been started. So 
now we're here and we're trying to show a different example of how this could play out in these situations and a story that has accountability involved. And getting to see these conversations start afterwards, we spoke to a few different podcasts. We had the privilege of speaking with a criminal justice class. Those are the conversations that start from a oh, film wow. like how did, this. How, how did that go? That's fascinating. How did that go? It was, it was very interesting. Uh, the kids spoke with their teacher and all the questions went through the teacher in that direction. So I didn't get to speak directly with the students one-on-one right. to really know what their direct opinions were. I'm sure there were some concerns about how these are future law enforcement agents who are now seeing an officer in this situation. And I don't want to completely spoil the film or anything, but it's a different take on the way endings and things normally play out in real life or we've ever seen in Hollywood. And I mean, I really have to thank Howard for letting me take a swing like this. And it's one of the privileges of making these small indie movies. Studios don't take a risk on something like this, but when you're trying to make something unique and stand out and the stakes are a little different and there's not a crowd of chefs in the kitchen all trying to make the decision, Howard stepped up and wanted to make this and believed in what I was trying to do. And it was really a unique situation to get to tell this story. And now that we are past what's been 2020 so far, I don't know how many films like this get made or the different people who would want to be attached. So everyone who is involved in this film, I'm so grateful for that they took this plunge. And now the people who are promoting and helping these conversations go forward, like Edwina Finley and Chike and Brian and Wayne Brady and everyone who have had these tough talks that are very risky conversations to have sometimes. And I appreciate you just for giving us the platform because there's people who feel like they have more to lose than to gain by having this conversation about a small little independent film and our topic of racial injustice and law enforcement and things like that. that, So I commend you and thank you very much for having us. I was gravitated towards it partly because, like I said initially, you were inspired by the 13th by knowing that these things were happening before the rest of the world became as aware as we did this year. And this year, like you said, everybody who didn't know suddenly knew in the, in the most horrific fashion, right? Absolutely. Not, not, through the, not through the power of storytelling, like the way you were going to do it or the way you have done it. So it, it completely changed in a way the nature of the project. But also, like you said, the project's not going to get greenlit by a lot of places because now the subject has so much around it. How you depict the officer, how you choose to depict the the victim, how you choose to depict all these things is, is far more loaded in different ways. And people bring so much to watching it every time they watch it. When the movie is almost a fascinating piece, it is a fascinating piece as a result. And I want to ask you, Howard, you know, producing it and getting behind it and sort of championing this idea. And Mike, has it been difficult in navigating the field since it's come out? 
to to say like here's why we take this stand or we take like mike you said a human this is a human film or i'm a human filmmaker i think all the right intentions you know but but how do you navigate the the arena that we're in now well i can say something real quick on that and it, I think Howard was about to say very cautiously and very thoughtfully. Um, <laughs> yes. And well. <laughs> those are absolutely words, but I don't deem that I'm right about everything I think. I put my thoughts and my opinions forward with this film, and I don't read every comment that gets put out there uh, because oh, that's yeah. not. That, nobody should. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just too easy. But if anyone wants to have a real conversation about it, I just ask three things and I kind of realized this after making the film and it's kind of made me stronger in anything that I want to have a conversation about. But if you have empathy, if you have an open mind and you have the desire to move the ball forward and have progress, you can completely disagree with me, but I want to hear your point of view and have that conversation because I know our goals are the same to get to the right place. And I absolutely don't know it all. And when I'm sitting in there in a classroom of criminal justice students, I'm looking at a bunch of people who know way more about these types of stories than (laughs) me, I certainly hope. So I want to challenge them. And that's why the way this film ends, I didn't put an easy bow on it. And I think that disappointed some people. I didn't say, and this is what a punishment should be. And this is how we wrap this up because I don't want people to debate my opinion on it. I want them to have a conversation about their opinion on it and feel like, where should we go from here if someone is accountable for these things? And I'm open to so many things. There's so many conversations that could take place about how we deal with these. And I want to hear the outside the box thinking. I mean, maybe there's a completely different situation for officers and the punishments they go into because taking a stance as a police officer in the first place is such above and beyond thing. Maybe they don't go to regular prisons for these things. Maybe they go to a rehab facility that is meant and geared towards taking an officer through that trauma and dealing with it. And that's how a punishment for these type of things work. Because I think prisons are antiquated. They, need, they are rehab facilities that have gone wrong. That is what they were supposed to be, and that is what 13th is about. It is a runaway train of what this industrial prison system has become. And if we got all of that into the right type of order, maybe we could better align and figure out how to deal with accountability in these situations as well. Because I think if Blind Fire came out last year and, say, some of these officers were touched in a way to where they saw themselves and saw an eight-minute video of themselves killing a man and realized that they need to take accountability in this situation. How different as a country are we if that moment plays out differently? If we aren't waiting for a trial and wondering how these situations are going to play out, but if one person sees the error in their ways and knows that there's a path to redemption that they need to go through. But we've never seen anyone go through that path of, How do I take accountability and find redemption? And I don't know that answer, but that's what we have to come up with. Or we're constantly going to see this, I am not guilty, us versus them, very large divide between police and the communities that they're also a part of and who they're supposed to protect. So 
when we made this, we just obviously saw a need for something. And knowing that I wrote it two years ago and seeing where we are now, it was clearly obvious. Regardless of the subject matter, you know, I just want to speak to your, your listeners. You know, any small independent film is hard to, you know, get traction on. It's just becoming very, very difficult, you know, and big studios and streamers, you know, they just, they, 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 they're making their own stuff. They don't really want to acquire a lot of stuff. It's, it's hard for them to get behind movies, you know, small movies. And, and with regards to our subject matter, you know, I think a lot of them are, are scared, you know, to touch it, regardless of what you hear them say publicly about, you know, the state of our world and, and their position on things. But, you know, independent film needs, needs to survive. Independent film needs audiences. And the interesting thing is, you know, I talk to a lot of film students and, you know, up and coming uh, people and I ask them, how many small indie films do you watch a month? And there's very few hands that go up. Uh, when's the last time you went, you know, to iTunes or Amazon or Voodoo or Fandango Now or, you know, and, and paid $3.99 to watch a small indie film? Even fewer hands go up. And it's like, if we aren't supporting our own, who's going to start that support level? So, you know, I, one of the things that I say all the time is, you know, a lot of filmmakers, Kickstarter and, you know, ask people for money to make movies. We've never done that. And my position is I'm not going to ask people for money to make movies. We're going to find it. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to make the movies. But what I am going to ask people to do is sample it. You know, go sample, not only mine, others. Go watch small indie films and support, you know, these types of films. And and unfortunately, a lot of small films, you know, don't get onto Netflix. Very few do now. And they don't get onto Hulu and they don't get onto Amazon or Apple. And so the only place you can see these films initially is on demand. It's $1.99 or $3.99 or sometimes $6.99, you know, on iTunes, on Amazon, on Vudu, on Fandango Now, uh, on Redbox Online. Uh, if you've got Dish or DirecTV or Comcast or Spectrum uh, or Cox, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's 15 or 20 different platforms where you can go and find all of these movies. And so I ask your listeners, you know, give it a shot. Uh, check out Blindfire. Uh, check out other, you know, small indie films. And, and that will help support uh, this industry and may actually let them you know, get an opportunity to do one of these because you don't want this whole uh, opportunity and, and, and niche part of the business to vaporize away. I couldn't agree more. I've made those indie films. I've seen them not go to a Netflix, even if whatever else, even with name, talent, you end up on plenty of streaming platforms. And the problem becomes from the filmmaker standpoint, and I can relate, is that how do you cut through all that noise, right? From what's being advertised by Apple, what's on the front page of iTunes when you go to buy or rent, when you go to Disney Plus or when you go to Netflix or any of them. Uh, and, and what's going to make somebody pick something from a unique voice, from a production company that didn't have corporate overlords, so to speak, that 
give someone an opportunity to step on a platform that, frankly, those other companies are going to be afraid of. They are. Uh, asking questions or they're not in a position where they even can because they have too big a a shareholder responsibility, right? Or whatever the business model is. And so that, you know, it's we're beating the drum of independent film because we care about the medium and the voices and the art and you said it so well. But if we don't seek those out, even if we don't recognize the talent behind it, that's particularly when we should um, then it will go away. And you guys are doing the good work of trying to make those films. And uh, the audiences of the world, we all need to support them. I always like having a story for everything about the genesis of where things came from. And I've done little things on Reddit filmmakers trying to find stories and scripts. So shout out to you guys. And so now let's just say publicly to all of the No Film School listeners, it would be Great to have a story that started at the inception of someone who heard this podcast and then reached out. But like Howard said, the types of films we're looking for, we're looking for first-time artists and things. And if I had a sci-fi film that was something contained that crossed my desk, I wanted to have a writing, directing team attached so I don't have to find someone who isn't already fully on board and understanding this project. But if it's a writer who's directing it or a team, either way. But something like that crosses my desk that we can do within 30, 50 miles here of Los Angeles. I'd be really excited about that. So let's just plug out there what we're looking for since I'm going to be the first line who has to read these things at our company. So let's get it done. I love it. Uh, what are the things, like we can do this another time, but I'd love to talk about what are the things you see in scripts. I'll have you guys back sometime or other people from Can Do maybe. But I, You're looking I'd at love, it, baby. Love, we are Can Do. <laughs> <laughs> I love to know what it is that people, that happens in a script that makes you excited or immediately not excited. Like, because so many people are putting together scripts and sending them out and trying to get, we get questions all the time about, you know, how, who do I send it to or where do I start? And I think there are certain things writers should know not to do or, or that they have to do. And I'm not talking about like having an inciting incident in page six or something like that, but just. Ultimately it just has to be super engaging. That when I sit down to read the script, and, and I have very little free time, you know, so if I'm going to commit an hour or two hours to read something because I want to read it right, I need to be engaged. You know, by the time I get to page 5, 6, 12, 20, you know, if, if it's not just a page turner and I can't stop reading and, you know, one of my kids comes to talk to me and I go, don't talk to me now, I'm busy reading, you know, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's got to be like really, really engaging. It's, it's got to be great writing. It's got to be great characters. It's got to be great scenarios. It's got to, it's just got to hook you or me. It's got to hook me. And then if it touches me, you know, and, and I get teary eyed or something at the end of it, you know, all the better. Or if I'm laughing out loud, even though I said we've never done comedies before, it's got to have impact. And that just comes with great writing. And so, you know, uh, to those of you that are out there writing, you know, don't stop writing. Give it to people to read. Don't be afraid to get feedback. You know, hear the feedback. Take it or leave it, you know, but hear it. Because if you give a script to somebody and you get the same comment from four different people, 
you got to stop and go, hmm, maybe they're seeing something that I'm not. Yes. Well, I I mean, the reason that it needs to pass the kid test, so to speak, that keeps you engaged is that if it's going to cut through all that noise one day and be on a streaming service and people do take a chance to pay for it, they need to want to watch the whole thing or they need to want to watch it or click on it or pay $190 or $390. So if it doesn't pass the first test as a script, it's not going to pass that test, you know? Yeah, I ask myself three questions about a lot of character or a lot of scripts. It's who are the characters that I'm going to care about? What are the stakes? And when I'm done reading this, what am I coming away with? And if I can be clear about those things and know that I'm not going to have to be the writer who now comes back and talks to another writer and all of a sudden rewriting it together because that's the last thing we want to do. And I was grateful to not have Howard try and take my project and insert himself in everything. Well, once I'm producing and change hats here at the company, we don't want to change someone's story. We want to be so inspired by the story that we're giving them tidbits and saying, Oh, what about this? But to try and do our homework and change it's the last thing. So just be very clear and yeah, it should be able to shine through in the reading. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to Mike and Howard for being on the podcast. Blind Fire is available on demand and streaming platforms. I am really excited to hear what people think of the interview and what people think of the film. We don't often get to talk to first-time directors and their producers (laughs) about what it was like to make the movie, and we don't often get to deal with filmmakers who are wading into topics like this. Um, Their experience on the 13th obviously influenced their decision to do this project. the response to the project has been varied and that in and of itself is unique. So it was great to have them on the podcast and I really appreciate them taking the time to also help people understand what it takes, what it took for each of them. I really like highlighting that both of them mentioned how willing they were to work and do different things and develop skill sets and make an impression on the people they worked with and stay in touch. That ends up having a lot of impact on your career, I think, and I've observed. If you go hard and treat people well, there's a good chance that people will want to collaborate with you again. And the key to a long future is people wanting to collaborate with you. That just seems to be the fact of the matter. We we have an idea that being a diva Uh, is sort of like a, or being demanding is part of being in the entertainment industry, but it's really a quick way to burn bridges, alienate people and lose opportunities. You can't do this thing alone. Anyway, uh, that's my spiel. And thanks so much for listening. Check out other podcasts by subscribing to the No Film School podcast feed. Head over to our website. Make sure to follow us on Twitter like our Facebook page and leave a comment. Thanks so much for listening.